I'm, I'm one of the lay elders here at the church. For those of you that don't know me, I'm the director of a counseling program for men that are struggling with life-dominating sins. And uh, if you'd like more information about that, you can see me after, after the service. But this morning, I'd like to give you some practical steps on how you can apply, that, that you can apply to your own life if you're struggling with an ongoing sin pattern. And if you're not, then uh, maybe you could take these principles and help someone who is. You know, God has called us all to be proclaimers of his word. You shouldn't just take uh, somebody that comes to you for help and bring them to me or one of the other elders or somebody else you know in your life. You have to remember that God brings people into your life for you to minister to them. And God's word is full of that truth. Um, we can see that in Paul's ministry in particular. And if you feel like you're ill-equipped, well, we've got plenty of equipping that takes place here at our church as well. So that's an advertisement for Joel Teague's counseling conference that'll be coming up this spring. Well, we usually think of drugs and alcohol when we hear the word addiction, don't we? But there are millions and millions of people in our country and around the world that are addicted to things other than alcohol. And things like pornography, various different sexual addictions, gambling, gaming, eating, and yes, texting and Facebooking. If you don't think that's true, even though it's against the law to text and drive, look around you at a traffic light. Or better yet, while you're driving, right? People are doing, they're addicted to that, that we can't communicate. I mean, we're addicted to communication. Maybe that's a way of saying it. But um, the word addiction is the wrong word. The correct word is the word sin. Anytime you see a Christian writing and you see the word addiction, it's probably going to have uh, the quotation marks around it. And the reason that is, is that identifies for us that that's the word that the world knows. So, we use that, but we need to be sure that we as believers understand that this problem is sin. So why are all these problems? Have you ever wondered why so many of us, and I use the word us because I fall into this category from time to time in my own life as well, came from a life of drunkenness and drug addiction myself. How is it that so many of us fall, find ourselves falling in to this sin problem? Well, I, I have an answer for that question. At the root of sin is the desire to please self. And Scripture's clear, and it explains this to us. It explains that pleasing self and pleasing God are actually opposed to each other, and God tells us that he desires for us to live lives that are pleasing to him, and we find ourselves wanting to live lives that are pleasing to ourselves. Listen to Galatians 5. 16 and 17. You don't need to turn there. We're going to look at a different... Well, go ahead and turn there. I'm sorry. Need to get this uh, solidified in our minds here. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, looking at this idea that pleasing self and pleasing God are opposed to each other. It says in, in 5, 16, but I say walk by the Spirit... And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Well, there's the answer right there, is it not? Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. He goes on, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not, may not do the things that you please. And then again, in Romans 7.23, we'll look at this later, but I'll just read one verse here. 
out of that passage. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And listen to this. Making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, what is a law? You ever think about that? The law of gravity does what? Does it work? Yeah. I mean, if I drop something here, it's going to fall. The law of gravity. Well, the law of sin, Paul says, dwelling in him makes him captive to the things of the flesh. Well, that brings us to need to understand what drives this lifestyle of pleasing self. And you know what? It's found in the inner man. It's found in the heart. Rather than serve God, we serve self at the altar of me. Right? Rather than serving God at God's altar, we serve ourselves at the altar of me. And we do so by our own choice to get for ourselves. The bottom line is when we give in to these temptations of the flesh, we become idol worshipers. And you know what? I used to think the idol was whatever it was we were given into, be it the alcohol, the drugs, the pornography, the whatever. Guess what? Not. The idol is self. Self. We become self-worshippers. And it all becomes clear that these flesh-appeasing sins, they're idol worship, which is a spiritual problem of the heart. And the motivation behind idol worship is self-directed in order to get what we deem, what we deem, not what God deems, but what we deem most important, irrespective of what God says to us. We could call it getting what we want, the I wants. Right? And that is the driving force behind our thoughts, desires, and actions. Keep those three things in mind. Thoughts, desires, action. That's the pattern, if you want to draw a little circle with arrows in it, that we all take. What we begin to think, we will soon desire, which then drives our actions. And all of these are their worship activities, because worship is that activity in which a person gives full attention to something or someone out of a devotion and reverence. So we're either giving our full attention and devotion and reverence to God or to ourselves as we seek to please ourselves. If you don't think this is true, find yourself a neighborhood that we would call a a drug-infested neighborhood and just go sit on the corner and watch. You will see people bowing down to the idols of themselves left and right. But you really don't need to do that. If you could pop into a lot of living rooms or offices at between midnight and 5 a.m., you'd probably find a lot of men bowed down at the altar of themselves as they're looking at pictures that they should not be looking at. Well, originally man was created a worshiper, and before sin, Adam and Eve worshipped God and God alone, right? However, after the fall, man was plunged into the kingdom and the family of Satan. And now, at the core, is a self-pleaser. And now, this self-pleaser is a slave to sin. Jesus said in John eight forty four, You are of the Father, the devil, and your will is to do your Father's desires. And what is that? What's Satan's desire for us? To sin, Right? Now man is in Satan's kingdom, and according to Romans 1, we still are worshipers. Even though we're in Satan's kingdom now, we continue to be a worshiping being, but we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie 
And now man worships himself by serving the created thing, us. This flesh-pleasing behavior is, is the inner man activity. Here's our, th- our words again, thinking, desiring, and acting that is directed towards satisfaction of self in the terms of physical desire for our own pleasure and enjoyment. In reality, the person doesn't, like I said a minute ago, worship the drug or anything else. Now they worship themselves, and at the core of addiction is self-worship. We still remain worshipers, but now we're worshiping nothing other than ourselves. Ed Welsh has written a book called on addictions called A Banquet at the Grave, and he says addiction is the religion of self-worship. Well, turn with me. We want to just look at one example of how this plays out for us, and we're going to use, um, turn while I'm saying this, I guess the Proverbs 23, 29 and following, Proverbs 23 and 29. We're going to look at um, probably the most prominent uh, area that people fall into self-worship, and it would be with the uh, abuse of alcohol, since our society is uh, so up on this particular product. It's a good one for us to look at, and you know, as we as we unfold this or just read this Proverbs twenty three twenty nine and following, we're going to see a picture of somebody. Get this now, who never ever ever intended to go this far. They didn't start out saying, "This is where I'm. I want to end up. Therefore, I'm going to take this first drink." This isn't how it starts, right? But the pattern of sin we know does what? It takes us further than we ever wanted to go. It takes us further than we ever even thought we would go. But guess what? It does it. It does it. It's a, it tricks us, and it takes us there. So Proverbs 23, we could look at a lot of different examples, but this is the one pertaining just to alcohol. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Then he answers this. Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Get the picture there? This guy is now fully involved in this sin of drunkenness. Look at the effects of someone who uses an intoxicant to excess. And, uh, you know, this is talking about wine, but I said the word intoxicant. That can mean anything from uh, marijuana to illicit drugs to prescription drugs being abused for what they weren't prescribed for, which, by the way, is the number one addiction in our country today. So look at the effects of somebody who uses an intoxicant to excess. They have woe. That means they have grief or they have regret. They have sorrow. They have strife, they have complaining. Uh, The wounds without cause come from awakening from a drunken stupor, realizing you have aches and pains, bruises and cuts, even broken bones with unknown causes. How did that happen, right? Uh, When people have automobile accidents, 
uh, because of intoxication, they don't intentionally go out and say, I'm going to crash my car into the bridge embankment there. You know, how did that happen, right? The redness of eyes describes the physical manifestation of redness, but you know what? It also may be referring to the look of despair that accompanies somebody that is really involved in this lifestyle. Carrying long refers to drinking for extended periods of time, drinking to excess. In verse 33, we see evidence of being controlled by the intoxicating substance. Begin to see strange things. And out of our mouths, we begin to utter perverse things, which do what? What does Jesus tell us? Out of our mouth, where does that come from? It comes out of our hearts. So these perverse things are actually coming out of our hearts. Next, we see the entire body, the eyes, the mouth, and the heart is further and further out of control. And this feels as if you're lying down in the middle of the sea in the most unstable part of the boat on top of the mast. Now, you can imagine what it feels like up there if you've got motion sickness. Doing that. Finally, in verse 35, we're so out of, out of it that you don't even feel pain from such things as somebody beating you up. Somebody else has, has taken advantage of your body physically. You're oblivious to the reality all around you. I'll never forget uh, when I was in Peru one time and walking through this village, and there was a guy there that was, was just drunk out of his mind, and his entire face was bruised. And I, and I asked somebody, well, what happened to him? And he said, well, everybody just punches him around because he's always getting in everybody's way because he's always so drunk. You know, and then later you just see him passed out in, in the street, in the street, you know, and somebody's not even kind enough to move him out of the street. That's what ends up happening. When that guy took his first drink, I'll guarantee you he did not think this is where he was going to end up. And, and, but, you know, the, the pain that comes from this is, is real, the pain that physically and emotionally, and here's where the trap is set, is that the alcohol, if we're talking about alcohol or any of these mind-altering, intoxicating substances, they help the person escape from the pain, which is what they're actually after. But then the trap is there. It's the emotional pain that they're trying to get rid of. I mean, after all, it does not, uh, if you... As our pastor, if you break your leg, you need to take the medicine the doctor gives you. Does it help with the pain? Absolutely. But guess what? There's a lot of people that like that feeling. The pain is long gone. They're still taking the pills. And then the guilt kicks in. Well, guess what? The pill gets rid of the guilt. So let's keep taking the pills so we don't have the guilt. Well, that's starting that progression of the trap that you never intended to get to. Then your body becomes physically um, addicted and you can't live without it. So the tragedy of this picture is that in spite of the consequences and the problems that drunkenness brings into the person's life, when they wake up, they still desire another drink. Wouldn't you think that they'd stop once they got to the, to the point that we're talking about here? But they can't. Why? Because sin has taken over, and now flesh is what is controlling their lives. Sin has now become the controller. The Bible clearly defines for us the nature of this sin problem. Turn back just a few pages to Proverbs 5. This gives us a, per Proverbs 5.22 gives us a perfect picture of how sin traps us. A perfect picture of how sin traps us. Proverbs 5.22, 
It says the iniquities, that's the sins, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. That word ensnare there, it means to capture, to seize, to take hold of, and that's exactly what the sin of drunkenness does as it ensnares, it, it, it captures us, and it seizes our life. We started out as, as self-worship. What started out as self-worship has now seized us and taken over our lives, and it says that we're being held fast. That means grasping securely. You're not getting out of it. And then you're being grasped, grasped securely in the cords of sin. And when the, the cords that are mentioned there, that's a sign of cat captivity you're all wrapped up now and you cannot get out the idol worship of self captures and it grasps us securely and ties us into captivity so then the question becomes when will it end when will it ever end it'll end when we realize the nature of the problem is sin and take the appropriate measures thank god he's given us appropriate measures that he has laid out in his word the songs that we sang this morning stayed upon jehovah Right, The promises of God that he's laid out for us in our lives came up the other night in our small group. We were talking about the promises of God. And those of you, you know, everybody, most everybody's read Pilgrim's Progress. You know, they get into the swamp of despondence almost right away, right? And the one guy, Pliable, he takes off. He's done. But Christian's in there. He's sinking. But all along, he learns that there are steps in there. The guy that pulls him out says, well, look, there were steps right there. Why didn't you take them? Because he was so despondent thinking about his own woes and problems that he wasn't focusing on God. And those steps there represent the promises of God. We need to turn to those. Rather than turning back in despair to the alcohol or the drugs or the whatever, we need to turn to the promises of God. That's the way out. What a gracious God to give us those, right? Well, we see these appropriate measures. Here's where we want to end up, I suppose, in Ephesians chapter 4. We will read uh, 17 through 24. Since 4, 17 through 24. And it says uh, in verse 17, Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must, what? No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard of him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another." So first, Paul tells us in verse 22 that our previous lifestyle is to be put off. It's to be discarded completely, not partway completely. We are to lay aside the costume of our unregenerate selves, all this stuff that the world throws at us. Paul tells us to put that stuff off, that old person. That's who we were in Adam. In Christ, that's not who we are, right? Paul tells us in Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that your old self was crucified with him. That's who you were in Adam. That is who I was when I was out there drinking every day and smoking dope every day and acting like a wild man every day. That's the old man. 
he's dead in Christ. That Tim Brown, great news, does not exist anymore, right? And in order, and he goes on to say, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, why? I always like to throw those in there because my wife says I should have been an attorney because I asked way too many questions. Why? So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Amen, right? We don't have to be a slave to that sin anymore. We are a new person in Christ. And he goes on to say, for, we, for he who has died is freed from sin. We're now new creations. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 5 to 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I sure am glad that guy is dead. And if yourself, even if you were not a crazy, rebellious, wild person, your old self was headed to hell. Aren't you glad you're not that guy anymore or that lady anymore? So what do we do first in the process of putting off this worldly stuff? Well, first off, we got to understand and agree that it's sinful, right? Is it sinful to be drunk? Well, God's word says don't be drunk. So that means it's sinful. Well, is it sinful to have immoral relationships? God's word says that it is. So we all agree that these things are sinful. But we have to understand that first. If you don't think it's sin, then you're not going to change, right? So the first thing, if you think it is sinful that you need to do, very simplistic, is confess your sin problem. Now, what is confessing our sin problem? It's agreeing with God that we have sinned. And I think in the realm of addictions that we need to agree with, I mean, uh, confess it to another person as well so we can have some accountability. But first and foremost to God, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 9. By confessing, we're agreeing with God that we have a problem. Perhaps you're thinking, well, my problem isn't that big of a deal. I can handle it. Well, you know how many times I told my wife I could handle it and it wasn't that big of a deal? maybe 500. That's a lie. It doesn't work. Once you're ensnared, once you're held fast by the cords of sin, you cannot handle it yourself. And that's self-deception. And that is a huge problem. Why is it a huge problem? Because it comes from our hearts. And they are, Jeremiah tells us, wicked and they will deceive us. He tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. And get this, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, thank God he put verse 10 in there. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. These verses tell us that only God knows what's really in our hearts. You know what that means? That means I really don't know me. You don't really know you. Only God does. And he searches our hearts. If you listen to your heart, if I listen to my heart... My heart's going to take me where I don't want to go, right? When we are in self-deception, also called denial, what we're really saying is, God, I don't really want to work on this sin problem. Thanks for bringing it to my attention, but I don't really want to work on it. I can handle it. It's not that bad. After all, I'm not using needles. You know, I won't won't do it again. That's self-deception. That's denial. And we must be willing to confess these sins to God and another close friend. We've got to be honest about all that we've been involved in. Then secondly, we have to be willing to put on, to make, I'm sorry, to make an honest confession. 
First, we have to make the honest confession. Secondly, we have to forsake our sin, turn away from those sinful behaviors and actions. That's the actual putting off process. Confession is really just words spoken, but forsaking consists of both thoughts and actions. Now we're moving from our thoughts. We've got a desire. Now we're moving into an action of putting that off. This means that we must be willing to do everything in our power to avoid temptations. This is us taking responsibility, knowing that without God, we, we can't do this. But I don't know if you've ever heard people in counseling situations, you know, when you have dealing with somebody with a life-dominating sin, they say, oh, brother, you just need to let go and let God. That doesn't work, right? God has provided a way for us to take action, empowered through his spirit in his word, giving us clear direction of what to do. If you don't take action, you're going to be doing whatever it is you're trying to not do pretty quickly. Now, this, um, these things to avoid may be people, places, things, anything that triggers a sinful desire. You know what? If you've got a texting addition, maybe you need to get rid of the cell phone. The, lot, the world will not stop tomorrow because you do. If you've got a pornography addiction, maybe you need to get rid of the smartphone and just get one that does what phones do, right? But th- those are, maybe those are radical things that we have to take. But how serious are you about the sin, right? Do you want to quit or do you want to just try and hide behind it? Having restrictions will really show if we're, if we're in it for truly God-driven change or if we're just trying to stay out of trouble. If I do this for a while, she'll get off my back, that kind of mentality. Or I can't tell you how many phone calls I get from people or parents whose kids or wives, whose husbands are in jail. Oh, he wants to go to rehab. I bet he does. You know, that's a whole lot better than where he's at now. But you know what? As a matter of fact, I just had a guy recently from, from out of town. The pastor was calling me. We were going to try and get this guy in the program, and, and they were going to uh, go to the judge, and the judge gave him five years. I said, hallelujah. You know what? We will know in five years when he gets out, if he's serious, he'll call us and say, hey, is that program still available? That's the hard attitude of somebody that really wants change. We all want God's grace and mercy, but very few of us want to discipline ourselves and have discipline implemented into our lives. Why is that? You ever wonder why? Paul told us in 1 Timothy 4, 7 to train ourselves, discipline ourselves for godliness. I don't know about y'all, but I don't like that. Why? Because we're lazy. We don't want to work. We, want, we wish that the let go, let God thing would work, but that, that doesn't, we know it doesn't work. And when you obey God, driven by the Spirit of God, and obeying his word, guess what? He gets the glory and the honor from that. And, you know, that's, we're not the joystick Christians. He gets glory and honor when we obey so, um, thirdly, we must be on guard. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So, how do you prepare yourself to be on guard? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to understand who our enemy is. And once you decide to forsake this life of sin, you can be assured that the enemies are going to put on a full-scale attack. And unless you know them well, you're not going to be able to stand up to them. So as Christians, who are our enemies? I think as we uh, survey the scriptures, we see that our enemy comes in three forms. It's a three-pronged attack. Satan, the world system, and the flesh. That's the three-pronged 
gig, right? I don't know if y'all have been frog gigging, but if you use a one-pronger, you're probably not going to get him. But a three-pronged gig will stick him good, and that's what the world does to us, right? That's what, the, the, what, what our enemy is. So Satan, let's look at him first. He's our original enemy, and at the time of the original temptation, you know, Adam didn't have a sin nature. His sin came from an outside source. You know, there weren't any drug dealers, liquor stores, internet porn sites, materialistic advertising going down the highway, no negative peer groups, no cell phone companies saying, you got to have this one, look what it does. The beginning of sin was a single being. Well, he's still out there alive and active today, prowling around trying to get a hold of us. Then there's the world. You know, when somebody has a reputation for being creative in business and setting up a system that works really well and makes lots of profit, we call them enterprising. Well, 1 John 3 uses the phrase, the works of the devil, to mean the same thing. He's very enterprising. The enemy is the second, this enemy is the second part of this three-pronged attack. Not only does Satan prowl, well, according to Ephesians 2.2, he runs things here on earth as well. And there's a system set up on this earth that Scripture calls the way of the world. And this refers to our thoughts, concerns, affairs, values, ethics, moral standards, and measures of success that people are concerned with rather than God. The world is not merely opposite of God's way. Guess what? It's enemies of God's way. And um, what we need to know is how the world tries to pull us back in. First of all, we know that the world hates God's people. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The world is dangerous for us because we live with it all around us and, and it can even render us unfruitful. It does this by having us act and think the same way that it acts and thinks. You know what? It's okay to be different from the world. And Paul says in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world. We're not supposed to be just like them. We need to understand, however, this will maybe encourage you a little bit. All believers of all time have struggled against worldliness. The world's regarding of alcohol and drug use as normal make the soil rich for growing addiction in the world system. I mean, after all, alcohol is advertised and considered favorable for social gatherings so the users can enjoy themselves. You know, what if we took out an ad and, and let's go down to I-20 Bridge this afternoon and get five homeless guys that lives have been devastated from alcohol. Let's go down there and get them and, and make an advertisement for the young people and say, look how great your life can be, right? You know, they didn't intend to start out that way, but that's where they ended up because they got grafts held securely by the cords of sin, and that's where it took them. Well, the third prong of this is the flesh. Traitor lives within. The enemy within. The mole, the traitor. From my perspective, the most dangerous front in the attack against the new birth is the sin that remains in us after we are born again. James 1, 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by Satan. Nope. What? By his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Satan never has caused somebody to pull into the liquor store. What makes someone pull into the liquor store? Their flesh, themselves, right? You know, uh, our own desires are what lure us 
and entice us. That word entice means caught by bait. I've got a six-pound rainbow trout on my wall at home. You're supposed to say, hey, man, I wish I had one. (laughs) You know how I caught that fish? I went fishing in a stream I knew had big fish. Satan knows us. He knows he watches. His demons watch. He knows what's going to get us. Well, I knew a big, giant, live, juicy night crawler would get that. I lured that trout. I enticed that trout with that worm. And guess what? It worked. Why? Because he was hungry. Actually, it's a she. She was hungry. Something about that. Wasn't Eve the one that... Anyway, um, ask me afterwards, and I'll tell you how you can tell the difference between a male and a female fish. But the um, point is, that trout bought, bit that worm, never knowing that there was a hook underneath it, and now it hangs on the wall of my office. We set traps for ourselves just like that, don't we? And we use bait to get ourselves in those traps. So it's important for us to recognize that sin is not some random thing that just happens to us. It's the result of a process that starts in us, right here in our minds. When fully realized, this process can even lead to physical death, Paul tells us. This principle of indwelling sin is difficult to comprehend but it's so readily felt as we live the Christian life. Again, as we read a minute ago, Galatians 5.17, for the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Flip back to Romans 7.15 for a moment, please. I want to look at uh, Romans 7.15 through 21. This is the great Apostle Paul as a believer in Jesus Christ speaking. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You see that? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That sounds like addiction to me. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Paul begins by admitting that he does not understand. He says, I don't understand my actions. If Paul can say that, how much more you and I, right? Listen to this quote by Augustine concerning the indwelling sin principle. Augustine wrote, I endeavored to brush away the swarm of unclean flies that swarmed around the eyes of my mind. They were scarcely scattered before they gathered again buzzed against my face, beclouded my vision. What a helpless feeling, right? Such a hopeless reality, and it comes from within us. We can't simply cut it off. Why? Because it's in us. We can't just move to a different city. Why? Because it's us. We're the problem. 
We can't just get a new job, cut ties with all our old associates, change our driving habits, and think everything's going to change. You might need to do some of those things, right? But that's all part of the restructuring of our lives. But all those things are not the ultimate answer because the worst of the enemies is ourselves. I remember one time I heard uh, John MacArthur preach uh, Luke 9.23. If you want to follow me, Jesus said, you have to deny yourself. MacArthur unpacked that, and he said to deny yourself means you've got to disassociate with you. You know, you've got to get away from you. And I took that, and that has really helped me over the years. I know that if I listen to me, me is going to take me where I don't want to go because I am the enemy, right? Middle letter in Tim, I, middle letter in sin, I, I is the problem, right? You can take the word pride, middle letter, I, it's me, right? But thank our Lord in Romans 8, flip a page over there, you can see this. 8, 12, and 13, we find the solution. He says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The challenge we face, it's active, it's ongoing. We have to keep doing it. Paul had previously told us in verse 11 there of chapter 8 that believers have the Holy Spirit when he says, so then, he's saying, since you have the Holy Spirit, it, because we have the Holy Spirit, we're able to defeat this indwelling sin. To put it simply, if we want to live, we have to quit doing the things of the flesh, empowered by the Spirit. So how are we going to do that? Well, we've got to move from putting off, renew our, renewing our minds, to putting on. So if you'll go back to Ephesians 4, we're jumping around a lot here. In verse 23, he says, be renewed. We've put this old guy off. The old dead guy's gone. We've put him away. Verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. We're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. This means we as Christian converts are to undergo a radical reorientation of our mental outlook. And this can only, only, only take place under the influence of the Holy Spirit acting on the human spirit as it affects the realm of our thoughts. Here we are back to our thoughts, right? Because our thoughts are what drive us. You know what? It's not your feelings. Your thoughts are what gonna, is what's going to move into your desires and into your actions. What Paul is telling us here is that such a renewal of our minds is the consequence of putting off this old self. The renewal continues through our lives as we're obedient to the word of God and the will of God. And like I said earlier, this is not a one-time accomplishment. Paul tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And God has given us resources for us to use in this renewing process. They are the word of God and prayer. The renewed spirit of our minds is a result of putting on the new self, which is a new creation made in the likeness of Christ. It's who we are in Christ at Galatians 2.20. Paul says... Um, uh, the life I now live in the flesh, uh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me, right? It's no longer I who live. He starts out, forgot that part. It's no longer I who live. That person is dead. It's who we are in Christ. The word new does not, hear this clearly, mean renovated. My house got torn up by a bad storm a few years back. It got renovated. It's not new. Some parts of it are. 
But no, this life that God produces in us is entirely new, new in species, new in character. So the new self is new because it's been created in the likeness of God. And that brings us to the question, then, how do we renew our minds? Well, as I said before, our resources are the word of God in prayer. God renews us when we place God's word in our hearts. Colossians 3.16, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. We must let the word of God dwell in us. We need it to take up resonant inside of us so much that it permeates all that we do. You've probably seen that cop show on TV, or maybe perhaps yourself you've been pulled over intoxicated by a police officer. Every fiber of that being is saying, you got to act sober, you got to act sober. Can't do it. Why? Because they're permeated with the spirit of the alcohol or the drug. Well, are you that permeated with the Holy Spirit of God that you go into the store this afternoon to get something? Somebody goes, something's different about that dude. He's permeated with the Spirit of God. That's how it should be oozing out of us, right? That we're that dominated, that controlled by the Spirit of God that we won't go back to that sinful, fleshy life. So the new man is the direct opposite of the worthless old self, right? Um, The I wants used to be the driving force behind our thoughts, desires, and actions. Getting for self was our standard operating agenda. Well, not so for the new self. As we grow in knowing the Lord, we do something. We respond. You know, if your college team wins the national championship, you don't just sit there, right? You respond. How much more should we respond when we know and discover that the creator of the universe is the lover of our souls, right? I mean, Scripture is full of teaching on how we're to respond to Christ, who, according to Hebrews 1.3, is the radiance of God's glory, and he is the exact representation of God's nature. We're told to trust him, obey him, magnify his name, worship him, love him, imitate him, and follow him. These are all probably things that are very familiar to every one of us. But one response that's, that's not quite so familiar is that we are told to fear God. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The fear of the Lord is actually essential to our response to Jesus. Without it, we'll persist on a foolish path that leads us away from God. So what is the fear of the Lord? It's not scaring people to not sin. A mature fear of the Lord is having an an adoration, an awe, a reverence, a devotion, and a worship to God. It's the response that says, your glory, God, is irresistible. In your presence, nothing else matters. You are all that I desire. The fear of the Lord also causes us to do something. It's not just passive devotion to God. It follows Jesus Christ in obedience searches out his will and can't wait to do it. Can't wait to do God's will. When was the last time you felt like that? That, my friends, is the answer to the sin problems that we face. How many times have you prayed for a heart? God, give me a heart to search out your will. I can't wait to do your will, God. You know, we usually pray more like, Lord, Please take away my craving for fill in the blank, right? We don't pray that we would be captive to Christ, wanting his desires above all else. But God created us to know the fear of the Lord. 
God asks us to consider how wonderful life with the fear of the Lord would be. Listen to these passages. Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility. 16.6, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. 34.9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Imagine, imagine having the cravings to do the sin that is besetting you, or whatever it may be, imagine that craving being subdued by the joy of knowing and obeying God. Imagine having temptations lose their allure because there's more pleasure in walking humbly with our God. Imagine waking up and strategizing today how to please God, the God who loves you, rather than where you will get your next drink or the next fulfillment of your sin. That would be freedom, would it not? So how do we learn this fear of the Lord? It just doesn't suddenly appear, and I wake up tomorrow, oh, I fear God today, right? One way to learn it is by remembering. We remember that God says about himself and about us. One of the reoccurring sins I'm convinced of God's people is that we forget. We get all caught up in the things of the world and we forget. We forget that the king and the father, the one who's over all the nations, has called us out of bondage to be his children who honor his name. Why do we forget? Well, I think most times it's because we're looking somewhere else for our satisfaction. When idolaters turn away from the Lord and gaze at the object of their desire, God becomes a distant memory. Thankfully, our gracious God has given us a means of remembering, reading, meditating on scripture, hanging out with other believers, singing hymns. Those songs we sang this morning in here, if you're on a path of sin, you just start singing. Dr. Heath Lambert at the Biblical Counseling Conference this week that a bunch of us attended, he said a man will never, or a woman either, look at pornography if they're singing hymns to God or quoting scripture. Won't, can't, won't do it, right? Remembering and really comprehending what God has done for us will cause us to worship him and him only in the fear of the Lord. Reverence, awe, and adoration will be our total response to God. We develop godly fear by remembering what he's done for us through Christ. You might be asking, well, how can I do that? Well, the answer, again, when you wake up in the morning, begin by meditating on the cross until you are thankful and humble. That shouldn't take you long, right? If you start thinking about the pain, the agony, the anguish that our Lord suffered on the cross as the wrath of God was being poured out upon him. That should humble us to know that we're not facing that. That should draw us to the cross, right? Plead for the knowledge of God and plead with boldness. You know, we don't need knowledge about God. Read Proverbs 2. Knowledge about God won't do you anything. You need the knowledge of God. Use scripture in your prayer. Can you imagine what it would look like to really believe that you lived before God, that your life was public? It would protect you. It would bless you. You know, God has given us so many awesome tools to use to keep our minds focused upon him. And the world bombards us with all this stuff, with that three-pronged enemy. Stay focused. That song, stayed upon Jehovah. 
that will keep you from going through that pattern. Remember, this doesn't come instantly. It's just like wisdom. It comes as we grow in Christ, asking and seeking for it. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray that you would help us to be like King David, Lord. And he said in Psalm 63, Because your steadfast love, O God, is better than life, my lips will praise you. Lord, I pray that we would be a men and a women, children of yours, that realize that a relationship with you far more important than even the air that we breathe. Lord God, we know that's pretty important because without it, we perish quickly. Help us to understand that without you, in the same way we perish eternally. Lord, I thank you that you've given us your word. I pray that we would be a men and, men and women that would take that word, hide it deep in our hearts so that your spirit in times of temptation and trial in our lives can take that and pull it to our remembrance. We can quote it to you as Christ himself did when he was tempted. Lord, thank you for the tools that you've given us. Thank you for the promises. We can stay our minds upon you. Lord, these are only thoughts and only truths, those that belong to you. So I pray, Father, that if there's some here today that don't know you, that they would listen to the call of Jehovah on their souls. Say, I want to trust Christ so that the wrath of God won't be poured out on me. Lord, would you call them unto yourself this morning? Pray this in Jesus' name.